misses. Brock isn't dead. It's just sleuthing. With your host, Willie Whitebread, and Mark Audio Slave Stewart. Another brutal episode of Rock Isn't Dead, It's Just Sleeping with me, Willie Whitebread, and Mark Audio Slave. Woo! Okay, so this is the third and final episode on metal. We're going to finish up the thrash metal scene and touch on a little bit of what came next and a little bit of what came before. Right, Marcus? Yeah, let's do it. Right. So last week we went over uh, Metallica. We went through the kind of late late middle late 70s early 80s mid 80s uh thrash metal movement and uh we went over megadeth and we went through metallica and their rise to stardom but we missed two of the most prominent of the big four right anthrax and slayer Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Yep. So Anthrax, being the unique band that they are, they they were kind of a funny band. They uh, they played a lot with comedy. They did. A they lot did. of comedy in their music, uh, which was cool. Yeah, yeah. That was a cool touch on it, especially being, you know, a thrash metal band. Right, right. right. And they were also the only band that was formed outside of California out of the Big Four. Not out of all thrash metal ever, but out of the Big Four. Well, considering they, they talk like this. Yeah. I don't know that I've ever heard an interview. Hello, with them. Uh, I'm Ian, and we're from Anthrax. Scott, is that how he talks? That's how he talks. Scott Ian, <laughs> yes. He looks like such a brutal motherfucker, man. He talks like this. Yeah, and I think he's a uh, he's the only founding father of Anthrax left, even. Yeah. Well, he was the the, yeah. the look. Yeah. You know, he, which is odd, right, for the guitar player to be the look. Usually, it's the front man. Yeah, it's his goatee. That's what it is, because it's, it's, it's down to his freaking knees. Is it? Yeah. Well, he's, I think he's only like 5'3", so yeah. it's not very far to go. Nah. But anyway, so <laughs> Anthrax <laughs> formed in Queens, New York, uh, July 18th, 1981, by guitarist, as formerly mentioned, Scott Ian and Dan Loker. Yes. Loker or Lickler? I think it's Loker. Lickler. Loker. Anywho. Yeah, their entire uh, original lineup was uh, John Connolly on the, and then drummer Dave Weiss and bassist Paul Kahn. Uh, and shortly after Kahn was there, he was uh, replaced by bassist Kenny Kushner before Lilker took over on bass, and Greg Walls joined as a lead guitarist. So they're going to play the game that pretty much every other band, Metallica had a little bit of trading back and forth, but they're going to play mm-hmm. the game that every other band played. Mm-hmm. Well, every other thrash metal band in that time of the big four and they're gonna swap members like fucking tampons yeah you know yeah. what i mean i don't think it was like hardcore like like, like yo you're not playing right dude you're out it's, it was i think like, that was the megadeth i thing. think it was yeah that was the mustang deal the i mustang think it was more deal. along the lines of like oh you got shit going on bro i'm sorry okay we'll get somebody else you know yeah that's the kind of thing <laughs> that's how they talk <laughs> that's how they yeah, did you it. got something going on this sunday okay i can get that you can't i practice. understand you got to go to church yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah Okay, so then uh, Weiss was replaced by Greg D'Angelo, and then uh, Scott's uh, Scott Ian's younger brother Jason Rosenfeld was a temporary vocalist until Ian's former schoolmate in their first or their their most one of their most prominent frontmen Neil Turbin joined the band in late August of 1982. So they were all around the same exact time. Yeah, 
Yeah. They were all there. Right place, right time. Right place, right time, right place for a genre. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is unique too, because like we were talking about, this is the same time that you know the 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 new wave of British heavy metal. We're talking about your Saxons, your Iron Maidens, your Diamond Heads, Angel Witch, uh, you know Satan, shit like that. Yeah. That had just came through in the mid late seventies, and hardcore punk was just now coming around. Yeah. You know, with that too. So Bad Brains, Black Flag, Minor Threat, shit like that. Yeah. So these guys are all all forming separate scenes in the same era, which is unique because you don't ever see that anymore. Right? It's it's one of those things, man. Like like you said, it was just the right place and the right time, you know, and and it was kinda like you know, they, they, they were on the same record label as Metallica. Yeah. So that yeah. helped a lot. Well, they they also they also were the last one to get a major record deal. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because we're talking about the John and I think her name is Martha Zazula. Yeah. We're talking about the Megadeth record stuff. Mm-hmm. Or Megaforce. Megaforce. Me- yeah, Megaforce yeah. record. Uh, that they, they did sign with those guys. What was it? 80, 83. I think it was right after Metallica released Kill Em All. Yep. Their initial album. Yep. Uh, they signed with Megaforce records with John Zanzula and all that kind of stuff. Because uh, they, had, they had made friends with him. Anthrax yep. played a few shows with Metallica. And um, I remember watching a documentary on thrash metal and and seeing and hearing that uh like firsthand that nobody nobody believed in metallica whatsoever who are you looking at that out there we're live on facebook right now i was just, seeing audio slave on, I was just looking to see if anybody's on there audio sla- nobody's on there dude nobody nobody cares whoa yeah see hi guys yeah well but uh anyway so uh nobody cared about him nobody believed in metallica nobody gave a shit about metallica except for this guy john zanzula and his wife yeah. i think it, it was either margaret martha Watch it be fucking Tiffany or something. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, completely. Some guy on the other end is like, "Fuck this fucking guy sucks." Yeah. <laughs> you don't know shit about shit. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so they uh, Anthrax signed with Megaforce Records uh, very, very uh, <clears throat> shortly after Metallica's debut album Kill 'Em All came out, and then in uh, and that was in late in late 1983. Um, so they signed with Megaforce Records, and the band started recording uh, the Soldiers of Metal single. Um, which was re- produced by Ross, the boss of Manowar. Love those guys. Manowar? Yeah. Sick. Yeah. Super sick. Kings of Metal, especially that album. Kings of Metal. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. And they have a Ode to Odin, which is mm. like a, it's, it's a, it's like a symphonic song yeah. that they did. It's very hard, very hard to find. I actually have it. Yeah. But it's a really good, really good song if you guys want to listen. Yeah, there you go. So... In, in addition to the thrash metal thing going on, you had multiple other genres happening at the same time as well. Because I, I didn't really understand the fact that they had all of these different genres, uh, you know. Well, I don't think at the time they, they, they had these, these classifications. I think that was later, like in the early 2000s when people When started, they came out with the started, classifications. Started, yeah, started giving them labels. Yeah. You know, this, it was, back then it was just like, oh yeah, they rock, man. Oh yeah, they're, they're thrashing. You know, oh yeah, those, those guys rock, man. You know, they're, they're killing it. On stage. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like, oh, well, those guys are doom metal and then these guys are new yeah. metal. You know, it wasn't like that. But it was all the same around the same time. You know yeah. what I mean? They And it was all that, that race like we spoke about before on the previous episodes of Thrash Metal. It was that race for the harder, faster, stronger sound. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because later on, like you said, you know, you're. I think you're exactly right there. Um, you had like crossover thrash with suicidal tendencies and SOD, right? Yeah. And then you had speed metal, which was like Exciter and Venom. And then you had power metal, which was like 
Halloween, which we spoke about earlier, that yeah. you do not like whatsoever. Okay, not really. Right. And then at the same time, because you had the thrash guys that were beating out, they, they come up with thrash because of glam, you know, because yeah. fuck glam. Right. And then you got the punk rock guys on the scene who were, you know, thrashing with the thrash metal guys about who's heavier and whose fucking statement about revolutionary government takedown is more prominent at the time. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then you've got death metal coming out with bands like Morbid Angel. We're the heaviest of hell. Yeah. And then they're, they're just fucking bringing it to another level. And then you got bands like Ministry coming out. Industrial. Industrial metal yeah. coming out, Nights which is fucking rad. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. That's just crazy to me how that whole that whole intricate system of different metal genres fucking works. And then I kind of think that goth metal kind of spawned mm. from a mixture of industrial and what would be considered goth metal? Marilyn Manson. Marilyn Manson? Yeah. Yeah. For definitely for sure. You think yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's a couple. Uh, a band called The Birthday Massacre is another, yeah. another good example of, yeah. of some goth. Because I've I've heard um, I've heard of gothic rock, like I've heard of The Cure, being described See, as gothic to me, rock. The Cure is more just college alternative. College alternative. That's that's what it was classified. Why would back it be then. college alternative? That's what think? it was classified. Oh, it was like the Cure and Morrissey, mm. and you know, uh, mm. I can't think of anybody else. Just bullshit like that. It was just stuff like that. You know, huh. all these little high, college high, radio high station girl, playing things. Exactly. That's what it was. college girls would listen to in their bedroom at yeah. night while they were, you know. Yeah, and you're never you're never going to get talking anything. to their boyfriend. Yeah, right. And then on the other side of the fence too. So you, what we've got now? We've got. We've got crossover thrash, we've got death metal, we've got thrash metal, we've got power metal, we've got gothic metal, right? And we mentioned punk. So another thing that's starting to come around during the same time of the big four, the Slayer, Metallica, you know, Anthrax, and Megadeth, you've got grunge starting. You've got that whole swap around starting, right? Because Soundgarden started in 84. Yeah. With their with their original LP with Hiro uh, Yash- Yashimoto as their lead singer on Screaming Life, that that LP that was starting. The guys in Pearl Jam started in uh, Green River, right? Alice in Chains was tossing shit around. You had Nirvana. So you the know. whole Seattle scene was blowing the fuck up. It wasn't blowing up, At but the it same was starting. Time, the California scene and the New York scene were all. Yeah. going off. So that's crazy. So, it was so the so many genres just popping at the same yeah, time. The U.S. was just in one giant. And don't forget that you had like Rage Against the Machine going off. You know, with a whole yeah. new, new type of genre. You know, yeah. like rap rap rock. I guess that you call yeah. call that you know, rap rock. That, they, they were like the Godfather. There was a rap rock, like Lincoln Park to follow. Mm-hmm. Fever three three three. Another yeah. one. I think. Um, I think Anthrax actually might have started that movement with that shit that they did with uh with the Attack at the Killer Bees with the with the the, ju- yeah, yeah. the Judgment Night soundtrack right yeah yeah with, yeah uh, Public Enemy Public Enemy yeah bring the noise Flavor Flav yeah yeah boy Beast how low can you go <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that bullshit so uh, like I said Anthrax in late 1983 signs with Megaforce Records hey look we got somebody watching look wave to him hey we got somebody watching on Facebook Live that's cool. Um, it's probably my wife. Um, <laughs> see <laughs> what the mine. fuck I'm doing out here trying to tell me it's dinner. Or time. Mike Martinez. Yeah, or Mike Martinez. Uh, so you've got, like we said, they're signed with Megaforce Records after Metallica yeah. released Kill 'Em All. So then they're going to release their debut album, Fistful of Man- Metal, January 1984. Yeah. That's when they're going to start their stuff, right? And they still have got, uh, what's his face? Uh, Neil Turbin. 
They've still got him. They haven't reached their golden years yet. They're still very green and very new. And they're also another band, Anthrax, that, that stuck with their roots. Yeah. They stuck with the thrash roots to the bitter end. You see them, you know, if they come on an Ozfest or anything like that, they are still playing thrash. Yeah. All of them are. Metallica's really the only one that kind of broke out of the big four and started making well, they that progressive to with rock. The, with, the, with the rap rock stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, they tried to, to break out a little bit. But they needed help. It wasn't like they were doing it by themselves. Right, you know? right, right, right. So tensions at this time, after the Fistful of Metal album, tensions are building between uh, Lilker and the rest of the bands for uh, a numerous, you know, myriad of different shit. And it eventually led to the band firing Lilker. Okay. Which sucks. I mean, because he was good. Uh, but he he broke off and started doing that, um, that thing. Because what was happening in the 80s? What was the big scare in our economy in the 80s? Nuclear war, right? Yeah. We were, we were fucking with the Cold War, so everybody was worried about nuclear warfare. Yeah. Right? So Lilker, Lilker broke off, and he uh, formed the band Nuclear Assault with uh, one of Anthrax's former roadies, John Connolly, which is interesting, because I don't, I don't know if you hear too much about people swapping spit with roadies, you know what I mean? Starting bands with roadies, that's kind of a unique concept, wouldn't you think? Well, yeah. Well, I could hear, you know, Filter. Those guys were, they weren't roadies, though. They were actually me- Nine Inch Nails. Yeah, they were Nine members. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you don't hear too much about the roadies. Well, uh, you know, Billy Idol was a roadie. Was he really? He was. For who? Uh, Rolling Stones. Really? Yeah. And he, he, had, wow. to get, he had to go get uh, Keith Richards whiskey one night. Mm. And Keith Richards wanted a, a, a brand of whiskey called Rebel Yell. Eh, that's Look where he got. That. The, that's where he got the title of the song. Yeah. Rebel yell, yeah. Go give me that rebel yell, you Billy. Yeah, keep crying, mo, mo, mo. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, fucking Keith Richards, man. He gives me hope. <laughs> yeah, right. He really gives me hope, dude. That guy literally looks like a goblin from Labyrinth. <laughs> yeah, I saw that meme. Yeah, <laughs> he does. Yeah. Like, he does. Was, uh, put those pictures side by side. It looks exactly like. I him. forget what that little goblin's name is, but he looks just like the fuck. He does. You know. He does. I wonder if we can cuss on Facebook. Can we cuss on Facebook? Fuck yeah. Can we? Yes. Fuck that. Who cares? Cool beans. Yeah. Fuck the man. Down with the system. Right. I'm gonna vape and do all this fucking shit. Anyway, so moving forward, you've got uh, once again all those members of the Big Four back in the day. They were sharing tours. Right, and they were right. starting to share their uh, their tours with their um, you know their idols. But and, you know, Anthrax was kind of always pushed as the front runner. They were always mm-hmm. kind of like the opening band. They were never, you know, I don't know if they, you can say they're termed good enough, but they were never popular enough to to be anything but an opener. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't sell. Uh, I wouldn't say they were that the entire time. So I would really. Do you really think that Megadeth, Metallica, or Slayer is going to let Anthrax take oh, over their, no, no, their no, spots? No, no, no. Billing? I'm, I'm talking more in the sense of they're sharing tours in the oh, sense of their... well, with other bands, yes. Right. They're you sharing... Know, if, they're, if they were playing a, a, a show with Bouncing Souls, of course, Anthrax would be you know the headline right. that night. But I'm talking about the big four. Right. And funny enough, man, there's this guy in Waycross, Georgia. I found him on Craigslist. He's got an Anthrax and Megadeth signed CD that he's selling for 20 bucks a piece. They're probably fake, but for 20 bucks, I'm willing to gamble on it. Hey, I have a... I have a couple things signed. I, I can, what, what do you want? I'll just, I'll yeah, just, I'll get you what you want, man. I don't want to hear your shit. Don't worry about the COC. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't want to see your shit. Or COA. What do they call that? COA. Yeah, certificate of whatever. So the, uh, after their, <laughs> he just printed off his computer. Five yeah, minutes yeah, <laughs> yeah. So 
<clears throat> After releasing the Fistful of Metal album, they uh, went on a successful tour opening for one of all, every single one of the thrash band's consistent idols, Raven. And Raven was considered a shock rock band because shock rock came out before. Shock rock came out a little bit before the thrash metal scene came out because we were talking about, well, most of them. Yeah, most yeah. of them. Uh, we're talking like uh, like New York Dolls kind of stuff, and like which gave birth to the glam shit with Bowie. But I'm talking more like Alice Cooper, right? And Ozzy. Yeah, yeah. That was the shock rock stuff, I- especially Alice Cooper. Yeah, well, he was the godfather of the whole shock rock scene, right? Know? Yeah, them sure. and Kiss. You well, know. yeah, but Ki- Kiss they were theatrical, but they didn't have the. The props, so like like mm. like Alice did, like in the big giant, yeah, cutting his own head the, the off, guillotine, yeah. and, the, and the monsters that came out on stage, coming out with his Bowie. Look, people are saying shit. What are they saying, Mark? They're saying, "Go fuck yourself over there." <laughs> Good to see Mark has material in front of him. I think that's your wife. Your wife just commented too. Oh, okay, that's okay. fantastic. Hi, honey. Yeah, hi. <laughs> anyway, so uh, they're touring with Raven at the time, one of their long-term idols, the uh, the Big Four's long-term items, and they they were pretty successful. This was their their debut album, their debut tour, big yeah. tour, yeah. right? And so that's that's good. And then uh, shortly after that, their their frontman Neil Turbin and Anthrax they they broke apart. Personal issues. I read a little bit into it. It was the the typical creativity issues, the typical. Uh, drugs, sex, booze, and rock and roll, the typical Dave Mustaine type shit that was happening at the time with them. Well, it's pretty much a staple in, in all the bands, Yeah, I would say. Right, right, well, right. Even today. Right. And so in 1985, Joey Belladonna was chosen as their new vocalist, and that kind of brought about the Anthrax sound. That was kind of when they found their balls. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's kind of when they found their sound and solidified themselves. Because up to this point, they, well, like we said, they were on Megaforce Records. They, weren't, they didn't have a major record deal like Metallica did, because shortly after Kill 'Em All... Uh, they were getting recognized. Metallica was getting recognized by these big record companies, and they got picked up by Electro, which was fucking gigantic back then. Right. You know what I mean? That was like the A and M and and uh, Columbia Records and all that kind of shit. They were big. Yeah. They were in the big in the big they, record. Yeah, they were. Yeah. yeah. Right. So they released an EP with him, the first one, Armed and Dangerous. Uh, it was a debut album. But interestingly enough, they they included two albums with uh, Turbin performing on them. Maybe, maybe those were pre-recorded. Who knows? I guess. I don't know. It's kind of interesting why they would do that. When did they release I'm the Man? That was the best song. I'm the Man. I don't know. Have you ever heard that song before? Oh, yeah. 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 It's the, it's like the funniest song they had. Yeah. And Sam Kinison's, you know. Yeah. Ow, ow. Yeah. Ow, ow. <laughs> yeah. It had to have been around 84, 85. Yeah. You know? Probably. I, I forget. It might have been on the Armed and Dangerous. Could or, be. Or the next one. No, no, no. That was on their third album. Okay. Amongst the Living. Okay. In 87. That was the rap metal first uh, dabble in the rap metal hybrid stuff. Yeah. 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 Because it was with the same, the same, uh, I am the law. It was with that too. Okay. I am the law. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's that right. Bullshit. So at this point, we're looking in 1983, all the big four, all the thrash metal guys, they are, they're dropping albums. Right. Yeah. They are, they're in an album race. All of them have record deals at this point. So they're, they're moving. Right, peace sells, but who's buying's coming out? Uh, Metallica's working on Ride the Lightning. I think Slayer's on their second album, which yeah. the name escaped me, but they're they might even be working on Raining in Blood. So they come out with Spreading the Disease. Uh, it was released October of 1985. So that's when they kick off their first, 
European tour. Uh, they start that in Germany, and they're supported by Overkill and Agent Steel, which were big thrash guys at they the time. They were. They were. Yeah, Overkill was huge. Yeah. Yeah. They were big in their own right. I was just listening to some Overkill the other day, and I, I was listening to a thrash metal radio station, man, and uh, Jason Newstead, the second bass, second? Third bass player, technically, for Metallica, his, his band Flotsam and Jetsam. I thought it was like Toy Robots or some Mm-mm. shit. That might have been after. Maybe. That might have been after he split off from Metallica in, I think, 01. Okay. But, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That band is fucking badass, dude. Okay. Flotsam and Jetsam. If you guys don't know who Flotsam and Jetsam is, you got to check them motherfuckers out. They're tight. So, anyway, um, April 86, they're doing the, the European tour with Overkill and Agent Steel, and the tour included a show near Chernobyl. And we all know what happened there. I'm surprised these guys are still alive. No, that got canceled. <laughs> uh, that got canceled. And they they rescheduled one for uh, a year, another European tour later that year um, with Metallica. Mm-hmm. And this was, uh, and we all know what happened in in, in that time, right? Cliff Burton, Cliff Burton. Yeah. So uh, that show was canceled due to they Cliff can't Burton. Win. They He's couldn't fucking win. These guys were fighting for their fucking <laughs> lives out here, dude. The Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> Something about those fucking European <laughs> fucking tours, dude. They were fighting for their lives, man. Uh, so shortly after that, and we're moving a little bit quick here because I want to get through thrash metal. In the last three episodes, we have not. Please, God. We have Everybody's not, falling asleep. I know. We have not been able to successfully get out of thrash metal. I haven't talked about Anthrax like this until since 1989. Oh, there's fucking, there's fucking Mike. Hey, Mike. <laughs> fucking Mike. Prick. But, uh, what, what is your problem? I fucking know. I fucking hate these people. Just go on with the anthrax, will you? <laughs> yeah, fine. Fucking retard. So, anyway, yeah. Uh, <laughs> their third sturdy album, which is the one that uh, you were talking about with I'm the Man, I Am the Law. This is when they started getting the real recognition. Uh, the whole album, Amongst the Living, was dedicated to Cliff Burton's memory. Yeah. Um, they issued the singles, I Am the Law, I Am the Man. Uh, or I'm the man. Um, like like we said before, their first rap metal hybrid, and that's when they started really perfecting their sound. They were actually starting to sound like a studio rock band at the time. Right. 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 And uh, they're, while still though, still maintaining their their uh, thrash metal roots. Yeah, because they wanted to be no- known for something other than just being a thrash metal band. They wanted to have some kind of other exploit to say, yeah, well, we also, you know, sound like that. So. Well, we all, they all do it. They all end up doing it. You know what I mean? Anybody that wants radio play is going to do it. Yeah, yeah, I'd say. You have to. Yeah, of course. You can't go around saying, yo, fuck this, fuck the law. All the-. You ain't going to get no radio play like that. You ain't going to make no bread. You ain't going to feed your family. Westinghouse, shit's expensive. They ain't going to do it, man. Is that a TV company? Well, it was an electric company back in the day. <laughs> Westinghouse was one of the main, you know, know, proportionate no, values of no, I don't electricity. Know. Okay, well, no. fine. You fucking don't know then. Fine. I thought it was Tesla. Well, yeah, Nikolai Tesla was in there as well. Edison. It, with Thomas Edison, the AC versus the DC current, but Westinghouse was also in there too. Con Edison is what we had in Jersey. Yeah, right. You No, the only thing you had in fucking Jersey... JCP&L. ...was Richie Sambora... <laughs> and Joe, John fucking Bon Jovi, and Joey Bag of Donuts. Don't yeah. forget about him. <laughs> and new kids on the on the cock. I mean the block. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, that. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, I know. Back it up. Back it up. Back We're it up. not talking about new kids on the block. <laughs> Draw on the line. Right. So uh, after their third studio album, Amongst the Living, is released, album dedicated to Cliff Burton. They do another European tour. Try another one with Metallica and Metal Church, um, and they also did one with Testament. 
yes. to promote the album. Testament's pretty fucking cool too. Yeah, yeah. Testament's another good one, and and another one, another one of those uh, thrash metal bands that kind of kind of made me sad a little bit because people kept <laughs> leaving their fucking band to go get bigger was Exodus. Mm. Like Kirk Hammett left them. It was you know just, what I mean? It was a stepping stone type of band. Yeah. Like, oh, once you get to Exodus, your next step's going to be really good. It, it was a gateway drug band. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. If you want to get fucking big, you got to start in Exodus. Okay. So anyway, um, fourth album, fourth studio album, 1988, State of Euphoria. Uh, had the single Antisocial on it. And it, that was an originally a French heavy metal band uh, song called Trust. Uh, and so that was also an MTV staple. That was, I think, their first music video, and it was featured on Headbangers Ball. Matt Penfield. That's right, Matt Penfield. Um, and so then they started expanding their horizons uh, with funk metal band uh, Living Color. Eh. I liked them. Eh. Wasn't that that choked up personality song? Cult choked of, up personality. Cult of personality. Cult of personality. I thought it always sounded like choked up personality. It always sounded like a bunch of dumb shit. Yeah. Uh, so anyway. Uh, Next channel. Yeah. Click. No, I thought they were pretty good. Okay, bye. <laughs> so they uh, bone, bone. Uh, never mind. Go ahead. I said bone, bone tomahawk. No, that was a great movie. But no, um, a band kind of similar to Living Color was it wasn't Bonefish. I want to say Bonefish, but that's the name of a restaurant. It was. I'll, <laughs> I'll think of it. I'll think of it. But they were better than Living Color. That's that's all I have to say about that. That's all I got to say about that. Anyway, so uh, they go on a Headbangers Ball tour to promote the f- to promote, promote the fourth album with Exodus and Halloween, your favorite metal band of all time. Halloween. Halloween. Yeah, we've talked about them a lot in the past thirty-five minutes. Uh, I just worked with this this guy Dave. This guy, a long, long, long time ago, and he was just like, "My favorite band's Halloween. I love Halloween." <laughs> he had just wore Halloween T-shirts, and like I was just like, "Dude, I don't even want to listen to anything that they put those guys put out because they sound so cheesy." Are they not good? No, they're terrible. I mean, uh, l- listen to them. You be the judge. Mm. I don't know if I want to. Now you're such an illustrious, you know. I mean, judger of all music things. I kind of trust your judgment at this point. Yeah, you're not missing anything, right? But anyway, so. uh fucking funny event 1989 mtv sponsored a uh, a contest in which the winner anthrax would come in their house and fucking trash it yes awesome i don't I, i've never seen that did you see it no but i remember when they did it really yeah and they were shown like we talked about earlier in 1992 in married with children which, which uh bundy yeah won a similar contest right fucking owl and they came in there and that trashed was cool, shit. that was a pretty cool episode i did i did see that yeah i did see that um so anyway, uh, yeah, they, now they're on TV, out there fucking thrashing people's houses, which is great. Uh, so in 1990, they release a uh, more serious album, Persistence of Time, which surpassed all three of their other albums in success. Mm-hmm. That's cool. It's a little bit more darker. Well, because by then they were a household name. They weren't, you know, just the opening guys for Metallica. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep, little bit, little bit more, uh, a little bit more dark, a little bit more progressive. Because this is this is kind of in the. Um, in the age where where prog rock, progressive rock is starting to form, yeah, you know, Tool, yeah, Nine Inch Nails, right, stuff like this, they and have to be a little bit more sophisticated and a little bit more current with the times, right? Because I don't know, man, music music to me grows like a plant, except for now, and it's probably in the last five years or so they just kind of fucking stunted its growth and stopped, right? It's just sleeping. Yeah, rock isn't dead. It's just <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> I don't know, man. I feel like it's kind of, it's kind of. 
pushing his way. Anyway, so uh, they're trying to keep up with the progressive metal stuff, and at this time as well, grunge is starting to hit the scene a little bit harder, which is cool. But so grungy. I hate that word so much. <laughs> I really do. But uh, a year later, after yeah. that album came out, that's when they started doing the stuff with Public Enemy. Yeah. Which is pretty badass. Well, it was just that one, you know, album. I remember hearing off that the on movie, the movie Judgment Night. Yeah, I remember the first time I ever heard that song. I think it was either on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater or Dave Mir. So Pro I think BMX. they did it on Judgment Night, and then they also did it on Public Enemy. Did it on their album, and then Anthrax put it on their album. So they had yeah. like three albums with the same couple songs. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but yeah, you know. Okay, whatever. Attack of the Killer Bees was pretty good. Yeah, that was good. I mean, that was that was similar to what um, Metallica, their what they would do with Garage Inc. I think that came out in 1998. That's similar to what they would do there. This guy. Uh, yeah, that's similar to what they would do there. Um, they released... It was a whole album full of basically B-side albums that they hadn't chosen and covers. Right. And this was also uh, shortly after this album was released. Uh, I think maybe like six, seven months later. Could be a year. It was very shortly after. Uh, Joey Belladonna was fired over creative and stylistic differences. And here began the the toss around between John Bush and, uh, you know, which is going to replace eventually Joey Belladonna. It becomes that toss around between those two guys. Right. And nobody gave a fuck. Mm-mm. <laughs> I don't even think they knew. I don't think anybody knew. No, no one cared about Anthrax, dude. I'm telling you. Mm-mm. It was just one of those bands that happened to be there, Lollapalooza, or happened to be at a festival, or... Happened to be opening up for one of the big four, you know, or big three. Yeah. It was, you know, Anthrax, they weren't a joke, but they weren't like... Well, they put out some comedic rock, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, like, no one took them serious. Right. You know. They were, I thought they were pretty good. Some of their stuff's pretty good. Yeah. But, you know, I like them. But uh, anyway, so after firing Belladonna, uh, remember, remaining members of Anthrax, they start, you know, fucking interviewing different... Uh, Different vocalists and shit. Uh, they interviewed uh, Mark Osajua of Death Angel and Spike Xavier of Mind Over Four. Um, and so they ended up adopting and taking in Armored Saint vocalist John Bush, which was their favorite. Hmm. It was a good sound. Um, I personally think that uh, Belladonna, Joey Belladonna, I feel like his voice is a little bit more thrash. Yeah. Personally. But, you know, what do you do? When you don't have a singer, what do you do? You get a singer. Right. That's all you can do. Right. So another prominent thing that happened uh, shortly after that, 1993, the shift for... So originally they started with Megaforce Records, right? Okay. And then they went to Island Records, which is another semi-small, a little bit bigger than Megaforce Records, but yeah. not not big. And finally, they got their record deal <laughs> what, nine, ten years yeah. after Metallica did with Elektra. Yeah. And they finally signed up with... Uh, a with real Elektra. record label. Yeah, with a real record label. I think they were like, okay, well... You guys have uh, put in your dues, and I think we'll we'll take you now. <laughs> yeah. You can you can play with the big boys again, or not again, but now. Mm-hmm. So that means that Dan Spitz took the money and ran, or he he he, he had to have gotten a, a cut before he left the band. Yeah, yeah, he got he got a pretty good amount. I mean, he the I don't dude know. left the band to become a watchmaker. What you wouldn't do that? Yes, he had to have some kind of growing up background history, something in the watchmaking industry. There's no way you just leave a heavy metal band and go, "Oh, I'm going to become a watchmaker, guys." Bye. Maybe it was just too much for him. <laughs> yeah, I, 
I guess. You know? I guess. Musicians get weird when they get sober. Well, the fourth, fifth time around the world. <laughs> well, yeah, the fourth, fifth time you go around the world, you're yeah. like, it really? You have to go back to Sweden and Switzerland and Italy and all the states again. Yeah. On the buses. Yeah. Smelly feet and people farting in your face constantly on the bus. Yeah, but that's the fun part. Maybe it's not fun to the old Danny boy. Or maybe, you know, maybe he didn't want to have his bus roll over and get killed, you know? Well, who knows? I'm, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Anthrax was with Elektra for about five years. Uh, they came out with the seventh studio album, Stomp uh, 442, um, which Charlie Benante played most of the lead guitar parts on that guy. Um, and then shortly after that, Elektra, <laughs> Elektra Records kind of stopped uh, promoting their albums. Because nobody was buying them. That sucks, man. I mean, it was just it just died. They just died in in in, in the do late, you think that, mid '90s. Do you think like that they just they just got adopted because of the the name thrash metal was tied to the back of them? Correct. You think so? And the fact that 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 they were buddy buddies with all the big boys, you know. You think? Yeah, they grew on that. That I mean, I don't want to say they they're not good musicians because they are good musicians. They just never had a, a like a big hit. You know, they never had that. That top single that everybody bought, you know? They never yeah. had that one-hit wonder, if you may, you know? Well, they had a couple good ones. I, I agree. Not nationally. Yeah, no. they weren't Slayer, and they weren't Megadeth, and they weren't Metallica. Correct. And they weren't, you know, Death Angel or anything like that. Correct. So, um, so anyway, after that, after leaving Electro, they, they sign up with an independent label. Uh, they're going back. They're regressing. They're taking the the strap, the scraps that they can get, if you will. Um, well, you got to pay the bills. Right. And they signed with the Ignition Records, and they released uh, their Volume 8, The Threat is Real, Yeah, in 2008, um, which is a cool album. I liked it. I listened to, I think I listened to it once, all the way through, and I thought it was a pretty well-made album, and I also liked that uh, uh, Phil Anselmo made, him, made a little guest appearance on it, singing. Yeah, that's cool. That was a nice gesture. <laughs> nice Pro- gesture. Try to well, revive them again. Th- that's exactly what it was, probably. Hey, Phil, man, could you please help us out and do a, do a track <laughs> with us? You think? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. From touring, you know, I'm sure they toured with Pantera, you know, here and there and everywhere else. Oh, this, yeah, this is about the time. Well, Pantera's already big at this time. Well, yeah. By well, 90. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. guess that's probably it. And then uh, shortly after that album's released, uh, the Volume 8 album, the whole label went bankrupt. <laughs> These motherfuckers can't catch a break, dude. Wow. So uh, then they signed with Beyond Records, who now now this is the point. This is the turning point uh, when you know uh, that that they were fucking up and they were headed down a downward spiral because they come out with a greatest hits album. Yeah, or could, that could just be just like you know the greatest hits album because a lot a lot of bands did that. How many did they have though? How many greatest to hits them, did they have? These are the best songs. Let's call these our greatest hits. Yeah, these are these are our greatest hits. <laughs> All one of them. Yeah. <laughs> All these singles that we put out mm-hmm. through the years. It's just gonna be uh, the side A of one one particular song, and we're just gonna keep it on loop like a twenty three minute loop. Yeah. Then maybe this year we don't have to tour Europe. <laughs> Yeah, because that always fucking works out for them. There's some touring sons of bitches over there. We're taking this year off. We're putting on a greatest hits album. Yeah, right. Uh, So 2001, we're moving up to 2001. This was an interesting year for them because this is that that whole anthrax snafu that we started having in the U.S. People were mailing fucking anthrax powder bombs to motherfuckers in the mail and stuff. Uh, So And also Rab uh, Caggiano joined the band. At that time on lead guitar, they're, they're, they're fucking throwing around 
know, bandmates like every other one of them did, except for Metallica. They were kind of like one or two and done. Yeah. At the time. But anyway, so yeah, 2001 attacks, uh, anthrax attacks. They wanted, uh, the U.S. government actually reached out to the band and wanted them to change their name. That should have been their name of their next album. Anthrax attacks. Anthrax attacks. No, God. With just the whole album looks like a letter. <laughs> yeah. It just says from to U.S. And the label puts a little bit of baby powder in each CD. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that had gone over too well. I think that's probably like the whole fart in church syndrome that would happen. Yeah, right. I, think I don't think they have enough clout to pull off a maneuver like that. Metallica could probably pull off a maneuver like that and bounce back. Yeah. Well, they kind of did. They kind of bombed with St. Anger, and then they came back from that, I guess. I didn't mind that album. I told mm. them because that was their garage type shit. That was them trying to go back to their roots, their thrash roots. All right, let's not get into that. And they were already too far gone at that point. They were already too adopted by the system. You merely adopted the doc. I am the doc. I was born into it, molded by it. Anyway, so uh, they release a press release October 10th, 2001, joking that they were going to change their band name to Basket Full of Puppies. Okay. Obviously, that didn't happen. Of course. Uh, not. Yeah, and so they played a in November of 2001. They played a, a benefit concert for 9/11, and which they took the stage in boiler suits with different words on each one of them that ultimately read, "We will not or we're not changing our name." That was a good publici- publici- publicity stunt. Yeah, good little stunt. Little hala, hala. Yeah, don't pass that shit over to me. Good little, good little stunt on their uh, on their behalf. Uh, so anyway, 2004, a couple years goes by. They release their, I think it was their ninth, ninth album. Yeah, I know. Live in the studio recordings. We'll speed up through this a little bit. Uh, finally, leading leading up to the end. So who is this Anthrax still? Yeah, Anthrax still in this. That's full with this shit. Yeah, I know, man. We gotta cover it because you know there's a bunch of Anthrax fans that want to oh, hear. Oh yeah, all one of them. Yeah. Oh come on, <laughs> you. Gonna, I like Anthrax, man. Yeah, I thought they were a good go. band. Oh, I thought they were, right. I thought they were a good band. Uh, they also did some touring because uh, Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax, and Slayer did their uh, combination tour. It's called the Big Four tour. They did some work with them. Until finally in 2013, their lead guitarist, uh, Rob, leaves to join Volbeat. Good move. At least it's a a known band. Yeah. And then in 2016, they had a short tour with Lamb of God and released their 11th studio album, For All Kings, on February 26th, 2016. Oh, my God. Finally done. Yes. Yes. Okay. So we've gone through Megadeth, Metallica, the East Coast Thriller, Anthrax, Base. So now, the last and probably the most, maybe not the most financially successful, but the most prominent in thrash music history. Yeah. Slayer. Yeah, yeah. Slayer. And Kerry King, what a bad motherfucker that guy is. I have never seen a white man with more tribal tattoos in my fucking life. <laughs> that guy is serious, dude. Him and Rob Halford look like the same motherfucker. And both equally as metal, except one yeah. isn't. Those, those tribal tats in the 90s, yeah. man, those were big, big time. God damn it. <laughs> tribal tattoos, <laughs> Tamagotchis, and fucking tramp stamps, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's that's all right. about, man. That's right. That's what it's all about. Guys were getting tribal and barbed wire. Chicks were getting tramp stamps and butterflies. And I came through unscathed. Mm-hmm. That's just because you're scared of needles. No, well, I mean, look at you. You're, you're wanting to get finger tattoos, for God's sakes. What's wrong with you? I'm fucking metal, dude. No. Mental. Yeah, I'm more punk rock than metal. Maybe I'll get punk He's rock. He's mental. After. I'm not mental. 
I want to get, I want to get into it. Anyway, Slayer, Thrash Metal Band, Huntington Park, California, came out at exactly around the same time, well, almost exactly the same time Metallica did, 1981, formed by uh, guitarists Kerry King and Jeff Hanneman, and then uh, vocalist and bassist Tom Araya. What's your thoughts on neck tattoos? I love neck, to- neck tattoos. So you just wait, one morning you just wake up and you go, what a nice day. You know what? Today I'm going to get my neck tattooed. Yeah. Fuck. No regrets. <laughs> Not even one letter. Maybe a big tribal. No tribal. Right up my neckline. No tribal. Maybe, I maybe can't. Onto my, onto my cheeks. I can't, I can't get behind the white bread boys getting tribal tattoos, man. I just can't do it. No one gets tribal anymore. If you're from a tribe, sure. But I'm saying... I think like the last tribal tattoo was probably given to somebody like 1997. I don't know though. I feel like if you go to like uh, like the mall and you go to, I assume they probably have a tap out store. If you go like shop at a tap out store and you buy a fifty dollars shirt, they probably give you a little start to a tribal sleeve. And the more tap out clothing you buy, and affliction clothing you buy, and rhinestone <laughs> jeans you buy, the, like just the further that each shop just has a dedicated tattoo artist, they just continue the tribal up your arm until it consumes your fucking soul and you go ultimate douche. And wear, start wearing white sunglasses and flat brim hats. That's my theory. Okay, on back that. to Slayer. Back to Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, their current lineup, they've got they've got King and Araya, and then they've got uh, the drummer Paul Bostoff and the guitarist Gary Holt. Gary Holt's a badass guitar player, by the way. Yeah, really, really big fan of Gary Holt's. Uh, Hanneman and drummers Dave Lombardo and John Dead are former members of the band. Oh, Hanneman, obviously, because he's no longer living. <laughs> Well, and see the unique the unique part about Slayer. This this is the cool part about Slayer. All those other guys, they had you know Vic Rattlehead with with Megadeth, and you know Metallica's albums. They had the electric chair with some electric lightning and bolts, and a little yeah. bit of flames here and there. But Slayer, dude, they're all about the dark and the devil. Yeah. Well, they weren't initially though. They weren't initially. The media adopted that for them. Well, they always said that the name Slayer stands for Satan laughs as you eternally rot. Yeah, I feel like that's probably just a made-up thing that somebody in like some bullshit article in Kerrang magazine said or something. Might be. Yeah, it might but be. That's, that's what I've heard. Yeah, but a lot of their a lot of their lyrics and their and their album art they were heavily scrutinized. Band. I don't know that I've ever heard a fucking Slayer song on the radio, ever. No, because nobody plays satanic shit on the radio. <laughs> I don't know if they actually sung about that kind of stuff though. Unless you're disturbed, which I can't stand them. Disturbed. No, no, no. But, although their sound of silence is pretty dope. <laughs> yeah, no, the, their sound of silence rendition is pretty fucking dope. I will say. I'm just, no, okay. Yeah, but anyway, so. Uh, I'll they, take Simon and Garfunkel any day. Well, yeah, absolutely. It depends on what mood you're in. But um, the uh, their, their third album, Rain and Blood, obviously, everybody that knows Slayer, they know the Rain and Blood album. That came out in '86. That was their that was their magnus opus. You know what I mean? That was their their heaviest album, and that was their most known for album. Right, right. Rain and Blood. Uh, but anyway, they had 12 studio albums, two live albums, a box set, six music videos, two extended plays, and a cover album. They did a cover album too. I didn't think they'd do a cover album. What the fuck are they going to cover? I don't know. What the fuck is Slayer covering? Who knows? I heard. Uh Corey Taylor do a cover of No Shelter from the Rolling Stones today. Mm. That was pretty good, actually. Fucking, speaking of Corey Taylor, I heard recently a rendition of uh, Temple of the Dogs Hunger Strike that he did with the lead singer of Hailstrom. And that was the worst thing I've ever heard in my fucking life. I'm not a life. big fan of Lizzie Hale. 
No. I mean, she's a good guitar player, but as far as listening to her music, eh. Yeah. I I hated it, and I thought it was one of the most disrespectful tributes to Chris Cornell. Well, the Cornell No Shelter ever. cover was actually good. Was it? Check that. Check Chris that. Cornell's a good vocalist, but... Not Chris Cornell. I mean, not Chris Cornell. Corey Taylor. Corey Taylor's a good vocalist, but I don't know, man. I think he should stick with his roots, speaking of which. But anyway, um, so 1983, Slayer was invited to open for that band, Bitch. That's the one we were talking about, the female not, thrash metal not band. Not seven-year bitch. Not seven-year bitch. bitch. Not seven-year itch. Not seven-minute itch. Just bitch. Uh, so at that show yeah. where they opened up for bitch, the band was spotted by Brian Slagle, a former music journalist who had founded Metal Blade Records, another one of those little Megaforce Island Records independent label type things. Yeah. Um, so they invited him backstage, or they invited Slayer backstage, and they uh, they wanted him to record a, an original song for a compilation album, to which they did, and that's how they got their start. Um, I feel like Slayer just represents so much evil. I love it. I fucking but, love but it. But not just the Satanism. I'm talking about just other evils. Well, they do. They, they sung about a lot of shit that kept them from getting... Uh, radio play. A lot of it like was race, focused on the Holocaust. Type stuff and Holocaust. Exactly. They focused just, on the Holocaust a lot. Just, they're just not a good people. They were very. I don't know if they're bad people, but they, they were. They are very, bad people. If that's all they talk about is hate and terroristic stuff, and yeah, I don't know if they promoted it. They probably they probably just talked. Well, they about weren't it. helping things. That's for sure. They were just talking about what was going on and appeasing to the angrier audience. Yeah, the hate, the hater, <laughs> yeah. hate mongers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> I can tell you that right now. Right. So anyway, they're, uh, they started recording. Um, they got picked up by Megaforce Records, and they started recording their first album, Show No Mercy. Uh, they didn't have any budget for this album. Zero budget. Completely self-financed album. Yeah. Uh, they used the uh, savings of Araya, and, who was a respiratory therapist at the time, and then they borrowed money from Carrie King's father. And the Hells Angels, probably. Yeah. Yeah, and probably the Hells Angels, because everybody in California was in debt to the fucking Hells Angels in the early 80s. Uh, so anyway, they entered the studio November 1983, and they dropped Show No Mercy uh, in December of 1983 with Metal Blade, and it started generating a lot of um, a lot of underground popularity Yeah, for them. It seems like 1983 was the fucking year, man. Like, that was the one. I liked 1984. Really? Yeah. What happened in 1984? Just a lot with MTV. Uh, not not just in the metal scene, just yeah. just in rock and music in general. Mm. I feel like you know, 1984. That's Van Halen released that yeah. album. I mean, it was just a yeah. big year. 1984, 1985. That's kind of when uh, the music video, like you said, the music video thing. 84 man just sticks out to me. Yeah, yeah. For some reason, that was when it uh, all took off. I wouldn't know, man. I wasn't alive. I don't know anything about that. But I'll tell you. Well, then you're stupid. You're stupid. Something else that happened in 1984. Fucking Kerry King joined uh, Megadeth for a little while. Oh, yeah? I didn't know that. Yep. Joined Megadeth for a little while to help out old Dave, who was down on his luck, just got fired from his meal ticket, and he moved back to L.A. and needed a little pick-me-up. But they, he only stayed with him for five shows, so. But it also caused a big rift between Mustaine and, and Kerry King that would last pretty much throughout the entire band's Ooh, history. what a surprise. 
Mustaine getting uh, yeah, Mustaine's panties and a, a bunch over uh, anybody, anything, any, any, yeah, exactly. powdered donuts, <laughs> fucking anything that you fuck with Dave Mustaine about. Uh, I told you to bring me jelly. Yeah, you don't start a riff between thrash metal's biggest prima donna and fucking somebody with that many tribal tattoos. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, similarly, that year, June 1984, Slayer releases a three-track EP called "Haunting the Chapel." Uh, it was a little bit more thrash metal than Show No Mercy, kind of continuing the uh, the groundwork with the in the underground thrash metal circuit, keeping shit alive in that in that uh, genre. Um, and but to see, also they set themselves up for for future the future direction of the band because you know their opening track of the album Chemical Warfare that had that had been a live staple from then on forward. Right. You know what I mean? That had been something that they played almost every single show since 1984, mm-hmm. which is cool. Uh, so, like I said, they're still pretty much self-financing themselves. They're traveling around in, uh, you know, Tom Araya's Camaro trip, you know, pulling a U-Haul trailer, fucking trying to sell albums out of the back of this trailer and, you know, self-touring, self-this, self-that, until uh, March of 1985. Devil, devil, devil. Yeah, trying to worship Satan and bring about the Satanistic demon gods to try to fund a fucking record, for God's sake. What sakes. a nice bunch of young men. Yeah, at this time, uh, Anthrax was actually doing a little bit better than them. Wow. So fuck you, Mark. <laughs> I'm not saying it. <laughs> so when they finally, uh, they finally broke out in about 1985, March 1985, uh, when they started a nation, uh, national tour of Venom and Exodus. Exodus, that other bastard band that we were talking about that just gets personnel and people band was raped just, from them. It was just created to get stepping stones. Yeah, like I said, they were the gateway drugs. <laughs> um, but anyway, so their second comes out and, uh, album comes out in uh, September of 1985 where they kind of got a little bit darker and a little bit more, a little bit faster, and they started you well, know, cleaning refi- their shit up. refining their sound. Right, they were, they were cleaning themselves up. Right. Um, and so it, it got them a big... A, a big uh, fan base, a huge, greatest, the biggest fan base. Got them a huge fan base. Uh, I mean, they were actually voted in the underground circuit as the best live band to see, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that was that was pretty fucking cool. But the next year in 1986, that's when the fucking shit storm hit the fan. That's when everything started dropping. That's when it was cool. That's when Rain and Blood came out. Yeah, right. And they also, interestingly enough, uh, they signed uh, their first. Major, major record so deal is with it Russell raining, Simmons. Is it raining blood? Rain in blood. Then, then why do they have the raining blood? I don't know, man. A play on words? That Something so cool? S- I guess. They would do that at uh, all, every other show, too. They would have, like, just when they would play the rain and blood song, they would fucking just rains of blood would come down on them. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty fucking metal, dude. Uh, not more metal than Guar. Yeah, they probably are a little bit more metal than Guar. Well... Maybe maybe Guar is like an offspring child of Alice Cooper, Slayer, and uh, Anthrax in their funny ways. Guar was from another universe. They were the scum dogs of the universe. Mandungus or whatever his name is. What's his name? Hungus Mandungus. Yeah, Orderifrus Mandungus or whatever the fuck. But anyway, so uh, before they start recording... um, Rain and Blood following the success of Hello Waits. And at this time, too, like we talked about, they started getting that Satanistic label. This is what they're in there. Hello. Right. Have you seen their lyrics? Right, 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 right. Well, it's funny because they didn't have anything else going for them at the time. And they had recognized they're like, holy fuck, we're uh, we're known for being Satanists. So they're capitalizing on this. But they are Satanists. They're, uh, no, they've never op- come out and openly. Admit oh, it, my. I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. 
Nah, come on. <laughs> come on. So they sign with uh, Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin on Def Jam Records. Weird. That's weird. That's really weird. That's really... Re- I think... I just... I don't know. It was, a, you know, obviously a largely hip-hop and rap-based... Yeah, it was... The money, the cash was up front. Yeah. Okay, sure. Well, I, don't, I don't care. Fuck it. And Well, they saw a trend. Yeah. They saw a trend. They, they started... Said, oh, these white boys want to do the satanic music? Pay for it. Yeah. They're pay big. For it. Do it. They're going to get big. It's all big. about money. Yeah. Right. Um, so, uh, Def Jam's distributor happened to be Columbia Records, who... refused to release the album due to the Angel of Death song on the album, which was one of their first Holocaust references. Uh, For any of you that don't know who the Angel of Death was, he was the uh, Nazi, famous Nazi physician, Josef Mengale, who uh, during the times of the Holocaust would perform deadly and fatal um, procedures on the Jewish community and things of that nature. Uh, So they weren't going to do it. So Geffen Records ended up distributing them okay. in, in 86. So uh, although they didn't, they distributed it, but they didn't promote it. Now Geffen, that was a pretty big company. That was, it was rising. And they were, they were getting into the movie producing and yeah. all that too. Yeah, yeah. Geffen, Geffen got huge. This is when they were starting to pick up motion, and Geffen got huge with the, uh, with the grunge movement, yeah. the alternative uh, Seattle movement in the late 80s, early 90s. That's when Geffen really started getting big. Um, so they release it. They release Rain and Blood, and then they start going on uh, the Rain and Pain tour with Overkill in the U.S., uh, Malice in Europe, and then they also had Wasp jumping with them, which was pretty cool because I liked Wasp. That's a band that I actually really like. I think they're pretty fucking badass. There's uh, this... Uh, okay. You don't know Wasp? Oh, I know. White Angle Saxon Protestant? Yeah, yeah, I love yeah. it. Oh, come on. Well, that's what it stands for. Yeah, but I still love it. Uh, there's a, this gate guard up there in uh, up there where I work. He's got wasp tattooed across his knuckles with periods separating it. So I'm like, I got you, fam. Sounds like a fun guy. Yeah, I got you. He's yeah, he's a real dingle looking son of a bitch. Uh, so anyway, <sighs> they are riding the Rain and Blood tour at this time, and then uh, I'm not going to go through every single one of their albums because you guys know Slayer. You heard Slayer, just you know. You know what they're all about. They went through their scrutiny like every other thrash metal band out there in the world. Uh, their following two albums are actually my personal favorites, and I think Mark and I talked about this, South of Heaven and Seasons of Abyss. Uh, 1987, they started to record it, um, and then they came out with South of Heaven, which was a slower, more methodical. They started picking up some of those progressive rock tendencies during this time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? And they, they, they kind of reduced the speed a little bit because Rain and Blood was hard, fast. That was some fucking tempo, dude. That was moving the whole album. But so at this time, they did they did kind of the kiss of death with that all bands have to come through, that crossroads where it's, you know, how do we appease our roots and how do we, you know, appease the, the community in which we started and how do we move forward? Right? Okay. So, South of Heaven uh, was the first time that uh, they had reached the Billboard Top 200, and it hit number 57, which is pretty fucking cool, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I, mean, I don't have much to say about Slayer, because I never really got into it. I know there's huge fans out there. I know you guys, you know, probably are like scoffing at me, like, how could you not like Slayer? But I've never... Never well, it's not for everybody. Say, it's never peace to me. You know? I love them. Uh, but they, like I said, they had, you know, they... Seasons in the Abyss. That's the only song... I great get, album. I get, the, the song. I, it's the only song I get yeah. for. It's a good album. Besides Rain and Blood. South of Heaven and Seasons of the Abyss are definitely my... Uh, South of Heaven's not bad. Yeah. But I'm just not 
that schooled in, in right. their, their whole right. catalog. Well, I mean, not everybody is. I don't know. I don't know that I know anybody that. Oh, I know. Knows I, every discography, the entire discography of Slayer. I, I know. I do actually. Do you really? You know, one person who would who would who would love to sit here and talk about Slayer for mm. as long as you let him. Well, anyway, so this is when the same thing with Slayer as we're talking about with not so much Anthrax, but Megadeth, eh, not so much Megadeth either, but Metallica and Slayer kind of followed the same uh, the same regime. They started picking up tempo in the mid-80s. They continued to pick up tempo, and they would continue to be successful, very, very successful dan- bands. Not saying that Anthrax and Megadeth weren't successful bands, but... They weren't as big as Metallica. Yeah, showing the crowds that showed up and the merchandise that was sold and the records that were sold. Right. That's where you you got and Slayer with their merchandise, dude. Holy. Well, yeah. Everybody everybody wanted one of those Dagon T-shirts back in those days. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So following the uh, that kind of finishes it up with the thrash metal scene, and following with that, you have every other rendition of metal you can think of. We had the Norwegian black metal, which we talked about a little bit, which is probably no, it is the most fucking brutal. of every single type of metal on the planet. I like that better than Slayer. Do you really? Oh, yeah. No, you can't sit there and listen to Norwegian black metal. Come on. Oh, I was listening to the other day in the parking lot of the movie theater. Really? Yeah. Sharpening your butcher knife, about to go fucking stab I people. I was listening to the Emperor, and people were looking at me like, is, is anybody going to check and make sure he's not going to come and kill people in the theater? Yeah. Is anybody going <laughs> to check on him? Anybody going to check on him? He has windows down and stuff. He looks <laughs> like he's angry. Yeah. So, so uh, you know. Yeah, whatever. I don't know. Post the thrash metal thing, you've got the uh, the the black metal, the venoms and Kel- uh, Celtic frost and stuff. Then you got the Norwegian black metal, followed by the, which kind of set the tone for the progressive rock and alternative hard rock scene, which I think personally is the industrial metal scene. You're talking about Ministry, you know, White Zombie, Nine Inch Nails, Static X, Rammstein, bands like this. KMFDM, Knights of Reb. Right, 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 right. Uh, Front two four two. Yep, 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 yep. And so throughout history, you're gonna have. Everything was based on, you know, the heavy metal roots. We're talking about Sabbath, Blue Cheer, and Deep Purple, and Zeppelin, right? Mm-hmm. Graduating to a little bit harder, faster, the glam metal stuff, the thrash metal stuff. Then you've got industrial metal leading into the hard alternative, you know, and then the metalcore stuff. And then finally you have bands that, you know, were more my speed in my in my era, which is called new metal. You've got like the, uh, you know, Deftones and... Corn and Disturbed and System of a Down and all that kind of shit. Coal Chamber. They all started yeah, coming out around the time that I started really listening to metal. You know, Typo Negative and, you know, all, all that kind of crap. Lacuna Coil, whatever. Right. Right. So the last thing I want to talk about real quick, finishing up the metal stuff, is I want to talk about the, uh, the first glimpse at social music networking. Tape trading. That's a wild thing that they used to do, right? That's fucking crazy. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of tape trading. Uh, some of you guys probably have the metalheads from the '80s, but what they used to do is they would, you know, they would produce these these heavy metal magazine and thrash metal weekly and all these, you know, Kerrang magazine and all these things. And something similar to Craigslist, they would have a classified section at the back of these magazines, essentially soliciting for new music, uh, soliciting for you know, guitar player wanted, drum play, drum, you know, drummer vocalist wanted, vocalist needed, vocalist needed. That's how uh, how Motley Crue got their start. How Mick Mars ended up joining Motley Crue, right? You know what I mean? It was through the tape trading and through the uh, you know. Have you seen the new movie? The Dirt? Yeah. 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 It was pretty good. Yeah, I liked it. it very, very, very entertaining. Yeah, very entertaining to say the least. So what they would do is, you know, a band would say, hey, uh, I found this new genre of music. It's called, you know, fucking Lego Stegosaurus Metal. 
And they'd go, oh, man, somebody over there in Berlin would be like, dude, that's fucking dope. And they'd, you know, send them a tape, write them a letter, say, hey, man, send me a tape of that. And then they would exchange tapes. And that's how Norwegian black metal and the Swedish metal came over yep. from Europe. That's how it got over here because, obviously, that shit was way too brutal to be televised. I mean, not televised, but, you know, commercially produced at that particular time. So that's how the underground market for those bands was created. Yep. And I think that's the fucking... But it wasn't just them you know there was tapes from pearl jam right 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 you know, eddie vetter what did you say they sent it to the, the guitar player uh, stone gossard yeah. uh reached out to jack irons the drummer for red hot chili peppers who knew eddie vetter who gave eddie vetter gave a tape back to jack irons who gave it back to stone gossard and then the rest is history that's how yeah. eddie vetter came up but still the tapes it was a demo yeah. tape demo tapes that's cool as shit that's what they were they were demo tapes that's really cool underground market kind of your first look at streaming music you know person to person and uh but it still holds true today you know you're gonna want to see some kind of youtube or or mp3 for somebody right right so anyway, that uh, that finishes up metal. That finishes up thrash metal. We kind of touched on every other kind of metal. We can't touch on every single aspect of metal because we'd be here until I don't know mid February, sometime. So did we touch on aluminum? No, no. Later. No. Later. Zinc. Zinc. Wasn't on there. I think next week, guys, we are going to go through a little bit of how the electric guitar started. We're going to talk about Leo Fender. We're going to talk about Les Paul. We're going to get real jiggy with how rock and roll began. It's going to be a fun episode. Right. We love you. Stay tuned for next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.